Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with Scott DeMauro, who heads the Ohio Education Association. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend covers a number of topics, including the inauguration of President Joe Biden, an effort to make body cameras more prevalent with Columbus police, and identity theft problems with the state's unemployment compensation system. And in about 45 minutes, I'll talk with Sarah McQuaid, communications and marketing manager for the Columbus Regional Airport Authority. We'll talk about how the travel industry is doing and what's going on at John Glenn Columbus International Airport. First up on Columbus Perspective, joining me on the phone is Scott DeMauro, who is the president of the Ohio Education Association. How are you doing? Uh, good to be with you, Dave. Uh, doing well. Nice to talk to you again. We talked to you uh, on occasion, and uh, it's been a while since the last time, and we're still kind of stuck where we were before with kind of this mix of some schools are in session and some of them are still virtual and others are hybrids. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see how the the pattern has gone. Um, you know, I not a lot of people predicted exactly how things were going to go, but I do remember talking in the summer that, uh, it was to be expected uh, that people in many districts around the state were going to have to get used to shifting from in-person to remote to something in between. And uh, we've seen that in many, many districts where there have just been uh, changes in their learning plan, uh, sometimes by design, uh, but also sometimes just purely out of necessity. Uh, when you have an outbreak of the virus and, and you don't have enough teachers to cover classrooms, you don't have enough bus drivers to cover bus routes, uh, oftentimes there's just a need to shift to remote learning. Um, and, and many districts, you know, because they are um, understandably very focused on making sure that the conditions are safe, uh, have, have exercise caution, as they should, uh, to make sure that they're not operating and fully in-person instruction until all conditions are safe. And you've got a finger on the pulse of what's going on with around Ohio. The OEA is huge. Uh, what, how big of an organization are you? Yeah, OEA represents uh, education employees in all 88 counties across the state. Uh, we're not the only teachers union, but, but we do represent uh, the vast majority of pre-K through 12 uh, teachers. We also represent a lot of people that work in support roles, such as bus drivers and secretaries and cafeteria workers and paraprofessionals. Uh, we represent a number of higher education faculty and staff. Uh, we represent educators who work in the state's correction system. Uh, we have a number of members that work in uh, county boards of developmental disabilities with both children and adults. So we have a very uh, diverse membership. We have over 120,000 members statewide. And you are a former teacher. I am. Well, I consider myself still a teacher, although I'm, I'm currently on leave of absence from my, uh, from my teaching job. I, 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 this is my 30th year in education. I'm a high school social studies teacher, spent most of my career teaching in Worthington. Okay. And Governor Mike DeWine said, I think he said last week that about 42% of schools, uh, of students statewide are back full-time in class. And with the vaccine rolling out, he's got a goal of everybody being back by March 1st. What is your take on that? Well, I mean, first, we certainly share the goal of trying to get back to in-person instruction. We know that there's no substitute 
for the kind of, of connection that exists between educators and students in the school building, in the classroom. Uh, and as soon as the conditions are there to be able to do that safely, you know, we want to see that happening everywhere as well. Uh, the governor's goal of March 1st is, seems a little bit arbitrary, and in some ways, uh, you know, any connection to the vaccine uh, may be somewhat unrealistic because we're seeing already that this uh, target of, of starting to vaccinate school employees the week of February 1st, uh, you know, they re- released a list yesterday of, of those schools that are confirmed to, to be having their first doses next week, and it, it's only... 10 or 11 counties out of the 88 that are on that list so far. So it's going to take a while. Uh, it also requires two doses uh, of either the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine before uh, people are fully protected. Uh, so we may not get there by March 1st, um, but certainly it's a it's a worthwhile goal. Now, we're, we're not particularly happy about using the vaccine essentially as a bargaining chip. Uh, to say that, hey, only if you make this commitment will you get the vaccine. We think it's an important public health measure. We think that, that vaccination of school employees should be a priority because it's, it's very important for our communities. Um, but, you know, overall, we're, we're glad that school employees are included in this phase of vaccines. Uh, and we're encouraging all of our members uh, to do their homework and, and to uh, really, if, if unless they have a medical reason that precludes them from getting vaccinated, to, to definitely get the vaccine. Talking with Scott DeMauro, president of the Ohio Education Association, I think I saw a quote from you that uh, said, in essence, that, that you would like to see the needs and priorities of students ranked a little higher in terms of who gets the vaccine, which staffs get the vaccine. Yeah, I mean, I think it's part of the bigger picture uh, as we think about COVID and the impact of COVID, I mean, we've always had inequities in our education system, just like we have inequities in society as a whole. Uh, but the COVID-19 pandemic has both exposed those inequities and exacerbated them in some pretty stark ways. You look at where uh, some school districts have not been able to open an in-person instruction, they tend to be concentrated in communities of color, in communities uh, with high levels of poverty, because they just don't have the resources to be able to do that. Uh, Maybe they have old facilities, maybe they have large class sizes, and they're not able to spread out. Um, They also, communities where where parents are, are because a lot of them are frontline workers and, and, uh, you know, are concerned about the spread of the virus. so those students have been disproportionately affected. We have made the case that as we're thinking about the vaccine rollout, we ought to be thinking about equity. And so if you're concerned about going back to in-person instruction uh, as many places as possible, maybe we should focus on those communities with high concentrations of students in poverty, communities of color, and vaccinate those employees, uh, make that a priority. Um, you know, and. In some cases, that's happening. In some cases, it's not. I think it, it's just it's happening more just on a on a regional basis rather than based on any kind of uh, equity priority. Uh, but that is a, a consideration that that we wish the governor and and other authorities would be thinking about. How is the online learning going in areas where kids can't afford to to have uh, high speed internet, or in rural areas where it's not available? 
Well, you know, there have been some improvements in terms of technology access since the beginning of the pandemic, but Ohio hasn't done as well as a number of other states in terms of really increasing uh, access enough. Uh, we still have students in rural communities uh, who, who don't have access to high-speed Internet. Uh, we have students in a lot of our urban centers that don't have access to high-speed Internet. Some of that has to do with technology infrastructure. Some of that has to do with circumstances within uh, households and families. Um, you know, and, and one of the challenges everywhere is if you have multiple people, parents and children, that are all trying to access the Internet at the same time, that that can create some challenges. Um, one of the good news, one of the pieces of good news is that, you know, we have been getting an influx of federal dollars. I'm hoping with this new presidential administration we're going to see more uh, as President Biden works on a, a larger uh, COVID relief package that includes targeted assistance for uh, school districts and, and for states and local communities. Because uh, that that's one of those inequities that was there before, uh, and we need to come up with creative solutions, solutions to make sure uh, that we're ensuring everybody uh, no matter what their family background, no matter their level of income, uh, does have access to technology, uh, that we close that homework gap. Uh, it was something that we call, we refer to as the homework gap even before COVID uh, because there are some kids that you can count on to be able to go home and, and do online learning, and, uh, and other kids it's just not realistic because of uh, limits in, in technological capacity. We've got to close that gap. We've got to do a better job than we are right now. You know, that school funding case that started 20 years ago or however long ago it was now, more than that, uh, that really has never been settled, kind of started with a parent angry because there weren't enough chairs at a school in Perry County. Do you shudder to think of what might happen out of all this with, you know, the lack of uh, equality with access to learning through online means? Well, here's what I what I hope is happening uh, with this whole situation uh, and it's not just about the technology issues. It's also looking at uh, access to learning more broadly. Um, again, as I said, we've had an inequitable system. Uh, I am hoping that the pandemic really creates a newfound sense of urgency with policymakers to say once and for all, now that we're 24 years after the Ohio Supreme Court ruled in the Duralt case that our system of school funding is unconstitutional, once and for all, it's time to fix that system. And the very good news is that the House of Representatives uh, in December passed on a broad bipartisan basis the Cup-Patterson bill, uh, you know, the, the lead sponsors, uh, current Ohio House Speaker Bob Cup, a Republican from Lima, Democratic Representative uh, John Patterson, who was termed out, unfortunately, from uh, Northeast Ohio, uh, who've been working on this issue for years and finally came up with a formula that, number one, identifies what are those uh, component costs of a high-quality education that should be guaranteed to every single child in the state, and number two, what's a fair way of dividing that cost between the state and local communities. House got it passed. Uh, the Senate didn't approve it yet. Uh, we're hoping and we're working with the governor, we're working with the House, we're working with the Senate to do all we can uh, to try to get that fair school funding plan incorporated into the state budget uh, before they finish their work in June. Talking with Scott DeMauro, President, Ohio Education Association. How are teachers doing uh, mentally through all this? It's been incredibly stressful. Uh, you know, I, as I talk to my colleagues from across the state, 
Uh, people have said they have never been, uh, you know, more stressed. They've never worked harder uh, to try to meet the needs of students than, than they have this year. And, you know, again, whether you're teaching through a mask uh, or you're teaching through a computer screen or in so many cases, uh, people doing both at the same time, uh, it just, it's just putting tremendous pressure on people. Uh, the good news in, in all of that is that it's drawn out a lot of creativity. It's brought people together. It's allowed, I think, for a lot of professional growth to, to learn about, you know, new ways of, of connecting with kids. Uh, but I will tell you, you know, people were telling me in, in September that they were all already end of year tired. Uh, you know, this the holiday break that, that now seems a long time ago. Uh, I don't ever remember a, a break that was more needed than this one. Uh, and now that there's the vaccinations happening, now that uh, case numbers are starting to drop a bit, uh, now that more districts are going back to in-person instruction, I think things are improving, but there is still a tremendous level of stress. And there's understandably a lot of anxiety. Uh, you know, people are concerned about their own health, their own well-being. Uh, sadly, we have lost uh, several members to COVID uh, during the course of this pandemic. Uh, and I've heard of many, many others who have lost uh, close family members uh, you know, it is a stressful time, and uh, this is a once-in-a-century event. Um, so it's not easy, but people are hanging in there. Uh, they're doing their best. And, um, and actually, I just saw a survey recently that shows that parental support for teachers uh, is higher now than it was even before the pandemic. So I, I think there's appreciation, but sometimes they don't always feel it. Uh, sometimes people feel a little beat up by everything that's going on. Um, so it's, it, it's not easy right now. Also tough for kids. Some of the stats have shown that more kids are failing grades than in previous years because of the circumstances that they're under. It, it is. And we know that this pandemic has uh, led to a disruption in learning opportunities for a lot of kids. So some kids are, are thriving in an online environment. Some kids are, uh, you know, are, are managing, you know, the, the modified in-person hybrid plans that are happening. Uh, but we do know that, that especially in our communities with higher levels of poverty, uh, that there are a lot of kids that just are struggling. And it's not just academically, and that's something that we need to obviously be very uh, concerned about. But it's also socially and emotionally. It's, in, it's their mental health. Uh, you know, I hear stories about uh, kids you know, just the sense of isolation and what that what that does uh, to people's mental health. Um, you know, it's it, there are serious issues, and all of that I think just reinforces the need for resources. Uh, we need to make sure that we have school counselors and social workers, uh, that we have nurses and nurse aides, uh, that we have people that are equipped to provide the kind of support that our kids really need in our schools. Um, and that we also are partnering with uh, the mental health community and with uh, the healthcare systems and, you know, uh, people that can support uh, meeting students' nutritional needs. All of those things were important before, but they're even more important now. And as we transition back to a more traditional approach to academic learning, uh, we're going to have to be very serious in investing uh, our time and effort into 
supporting those kids who are hurt the most, um, investing in after-school programs, investing in summer school programs, investing in individual tutoring that's targeted to kids uh, to make sure that we take every student uh, where they are and we lift them up and bring them as far as we possibly can. Talking with Scott DeMauro, President, Ohio Education Association. You know, it's interesting. I live in Gahanna, where in November there was a, a big uh, levy on the ballot for a new high school and upgrades across the system. And I remember thinking, boy, this is a tough time to say that you don't have enough room in your high school when, when a lot of kids aren't even in the school right now. But it passed, barely, but it did pass. And it makes me wonder, going forward, what kind of an impact this will have on levies, whether people will have a new sense of appreciation for getting their kids out of the house, (laughs) but also, you know, the importance of, of education in their kids' lives. Well, I, I, I think that there may be some truth to that, um, that people understand now more than ever, uh, just what a critical role public schools play in every community, not just in supporting academic growth of students, uh, but as a hub uh, for the community and that supports the whole child, that supports you know, the, the social, emotional, and, and uh, the mental development of our kids and you know, the important role that that plays for families and parents, uh, and like you said, uh, you know, parents with newfound appreciation for, uh, you know, how difficult it is uh, to teach kids, uh, but also, you know, how valuable that time, <laughs> you know, when, <laughs> when kids are in school buildings uh, can be. Um, but also, you know, as a, a just central to the economy. Uh, and so when we invest in our schools, uh, you know, that is good for families, it's good for, uh, it's good for business, it's good for communities, um, and uh, most importantly, it's, it's good for kids. What uh, are you hoping to see going forward, Scott, in the next few weeks or months and heading into next school year? Well, I think first we need to remain vigilant uh, when it comes to health and safety concerns. Um, you know, we can't let our guard down. Uh, even as people start to get vaccinated, there's still going to be a lot of people in schools uh, who aren't yet vaccinated. Students aren't going to be vaccinated uh, for the foreseeable future. Some adults aren't going to be able to be vaccinated because of medical issues or other circumstances. And so we're going to have to uh, maintain you know, strict adherence to mask wearing and, and social distancing, making sure that people aren't coming to school when they're sick, so testing and tracing and quarantining. All of those things are going to continue to be important. And, you know, we, we have to be careful that if we see this decline in case numbers, that, that we don't let our guard down because, you know, we've seen a decline in case numbers before only to see them come back up. And especially with new strains of COVID uh, that are emerging places that are, that are said to be more contagious, um, you know, we can't let our guard down when it comes to safety. Um, but then the other thing is, is really paying attention to equity. Uh, in the short term, we have to make sure that we're directing resources where they're needed most uh, to help students who are most affected by disrupted learning uh, opportunities as a result of the pandemic, uh, and also to make sure that districts have what they need to make sure that conditions are safe and, and that they can equitably provide education to their students. Uh, and in the longer term, 
Uh, I think it's looking at what are those underlying structural issues, uh, getting a fair school funding plan passed uh, that adequately funds our public schools, uh, that does it, does it in an equitable way where the resources are directed uh, where they're needed the most, but a plan also that's predictable, that's fair, uh, and that helps move us away from an over-reliance on local property taxes. Um, you know, we've seen since since the Duralf case, uh, you know, more and more uh, need for local levies to be passed because the state just hasn't done its job. Mm -hmm. uh, there will always be a need for local levies, but in the but over time, uh, if we have a fair school funding plan, uh, it's really about you know rebalancing the load uh, so that you know everyone is contributing their fair share and we have a system that's sustainable. So that, that, that's that's what I'm hopeful for. I think we've got tremendous opportunities to get it done now. Going to be a lot of evaluations once uh, all this is over. It seems like uh, anything else you'd like to add, Scott? Well, you know, one other thing that I'll just I'll just mention is that you know a lot of teachers uh, are concerned, and and if there's one question I get uh, more than just about anything else that's not directly tied to COVID and and the vaccine. Uh, it's questions about standardized testing. Uh, we've always known that we've, uh, for the last you know, couple of decades, uh, we've spent entirely too much time testing kids as opposed to teaching kids. Uh, we need to be focused on what makes our classrooms a center for creativity and imagination and really instills in our kids a desire to learn, uh, especially in these times. Uh, what a lot of people are dreading is getting to the spring and having to go through weeks of, of state standardized testing, uh, which is going to largely tell us what we kind of already suspect, that wealthier kids are doing better and poorer kids are doing worse, but aren't going to give us uh, a lot of information that we can help with our kids right now as teachers are doing all they can to try to uh, you know, support their students and, and take them from where they are right now to where they need to be. You know, teachers have been trained to assess students. Uh, we need to let teachers do their job. Uh, we've been advocating with the new federal administration for federal testing relief, and we're going to continue to advocate with state leaders uh, for a continuation of, of testing relief, uh, at least for this year, because uh, we know that we really need to be focused on supporting our students, not, not testing uh, them. Uh, we we want to see them COVID tested. We don't necessarily want to see, wanna see uh, excessive standardized uh, academic testing. Scott, if folks want more info about your uh, organization, where do they find it? Our website has lots of great resources, uh, including a whole FAQ section on COVID-19 uh, that's of particular interest to educators, uh, whether they're members of OEA or not. But you can go to ohea.org to learn more. Okay, Scott DeMauro, President, Ohio Education Association. Always good to talk to you, Scott. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Dave. Good talking to you. Hey, this is Kevin Love from the Cleveland Cavaliers. At times, life can feel scary, which can leave us hurting and feeling overwhelmed with anxiety. Now, more than ever, we need to be kind to ourselves, kind to our mental health, and find some time and space in these tough times. Mindfulness is something that's helped me and I hope it can help you too. My nonprofit is partnering with Headspace to offer you free content that can ease those feelings of anxiety. It's as easy to do as this. Take a big, deep breath, 
In through the nose, out through the mouth. In and out. Just breathing. In and out. Head to kevinlovefun.org slash headspace and be kind to your mind. There's a place to share the joy of your team winning it all and a place to share a laugh about skiing and taking a fall. There's a place to share photos of pets or singing in the choir or the time you ate a pepper and your mouth was on fire. But we could all be better at sharing how we're feeling inside. 76% of employees have struggled with at least one issue that affected their mental health. When you share, you're not alone. Ask about your company's emotional health benefits. Visit heart.org slash sharing. Brought to you by the American Heart Association. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV. Here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Here's Tracy. The U.S. has new leadership and President Joe Biden wasted no time getting down to business. We'll take a look at his first few days in office, plus have reaction from Ohio's lawmakers and everyday people. It's a time for first, and it's a time for positive first. We begin to get back to what was positive about America, and it was the diversity. The new president quickly rolled out a new plan to combat COVID-19, and it comes with a warning that the worst is yet to come. We're in a national emergency, and it's time we treat it like one. We thank you so much for joining us for Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. It's been historic with a transition of power between former President Donald Trump to President Joe Biden. And Biden, again, wasted no time making big changes. On his first full day in office, he laid out a plan to fight the coronavirus pandemic. And that plan includes expanding testing and vaccine availability. President Biden wants to administer 100 million vaccine doses by the end of April. The past uh, year... We couldn't rely on the federal government to act with the urgency and focus and coordination we needed. And we have seen the tragic cost of that failure. Biden also implemented new travel restrictions as well as a mask mandate for all federal buildings. Several Ohio lawmakers were there as President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris took the oath of office. Representative Joyce Beatty tweeted several pictures from the inauguration, including one where she's surrounded by National Guardsmen. Her caption reads, I'm really, really safe. She says the inauguration starts a new exciting chapter in our nation's history. Beatty says America's focus needs to be on ending the pandemic, expanding economic opportunity and ensuring equality for all. And that she believes this administration will get that done. Congressman Steve Stivers tweeted that he was grateful to attend the inauguration and that as a congressman, he took an oath to our Constitution, not to a president or a political party. Stiver says he's committed to upholding the peaceful transition of power. Senators Rob Portman and Sherrod Brown voiced their support on Twitter. Portman did attend inauguration, but sent a tweet hours after the festivities about policies Biden had already began to change. Portman criticized shutting down the Keystone XL pipeline, saying it will eliminate jobs, among other things. Senator Brown, on the other hand, sent a tweet commending Biden on his first steps in office, saying he's putting the country on the right path. 
inauguration is seen as a celebration of democracy. And that's something I talked about earlier this week on 10 This Morning with Dr. Francesca Nestor. She's an assistant professor of politics and government at Ohio Wesleyan University. It's a celebration of our system. It's important to remember it's not about any one person. In fact, the person who has been for four years one of the most powerful people in the world just steps aside and leaves and becomes a regular person again and a new person comes into his place. And that's something that we should celebrate and be happy about and it should unify all of us. We came from a system where you earned your power on the basis of uh, your birthright. And instead, we celebrate people coming to power by virtue of being elected by the people. Based on your expertise, especially in equality in American politics, how much of a challenge does this new administration face? I think he faces a great challenge. Um, I think both parties have meaningful splits. Um, there is a, you know, a split within uh, his own party, the Democratic Party, um, and he has signaled efforts to work with the progressive side of the party, um, even though he is seen as more of a moderate. At the same time, he faces a Republican Party who is um, struggling with what happened two weeks ago. Um, you heard Mitch McConnell's comments on that and uh, wanting to um, move forward. Um, at the same time, there's a sizable percentage of, of the country that are concerned about, you know, they. Don't don't, they don't believe the election results and they don't see him as legitimate. Um, and they have some supporters for that within Congress. So I do think he has a difficult road ahead. And of course, this inauguration is going to hold a special focus on the swearing in of Vice President Kamala Harris. You've got to talk about how significant this particular first is for the country. Well, it's huge. Um, we celebrate, you know, it's it's um, it's a shame that it takes so long for us to uh, meet these milestones, but it's a milestone and we should celebrate. And um, she's using Thurgood Marshall's Bible to be sworn in on. I'm one of her two Bibles that she's being sworn in on. Um, yeah, it's a powerful statement for um, even though there were forces that uh, wanted to uh, move us toward white supremacy just two weeks ago. Um, today, we see that um, we are still bending our arc of justice um, in the right direction. So it's a very positive, very special moment. No matter how you voted, there's no ignoring this administration marks many firsts. Kamala Harris is the first woman, woman of color to be elected as vice president. President Joe Biden is now the oldest president and the second Catholic as commander in chief. 10TV's Angela Riger talked with Ohioans about the historic change in leadership. This land is yours. This land is mine. It, it's, it's a time for first, and it's a time for positive first. Tears uh, filling my eyes knowing that I was watching something so monumental and historic. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. I, Kamala Davy Harris, do solemnly swear. All of my excuses were eliminated in that moment. Like, I can do anything. The office of President of the United States. Office of President of the United States. You know, it's a profound statement that the new administration is really sending a very clear message of unity and solidarity and um, just acceptance of people of all walks of life, including those with disabilities. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. For me, I think it is even a bigger uh, a moment of pride because I know that Kamala Harris's uh, roots are also Indian. So uh, that, that makes me even more proud. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. So help you God. So help me God. Uh, the energy that he uh, puts off tells me that he is a, a, a strong Christian 
that believes in accepting, listening, and hopefully adapting to others. The duties of the office upon which I am about to enter. Honestly, in my lifetime, I didn't think I'd ever see a vice president, a woman, be a vice president, or let, you let it on a president. I still were waiting for that. But she's standing on the shoulders of so many other people of all walks of life. Bajo Dios, indivisible, con libertad y justicia para todos. Especially for the immigrants here in America, it's going to be a great change. Congratulations, Mr. President. I don't think that any young person now looking to see um, what could lie ahead could think, oh, it can never be me. No, it can be you, but you've got to put forth the word. And that was Angela Reichard putting that report together. Before the inauguration ceremony, former President Donald Trump left the White House and went to Florida. The 45th president was greeted by supporters once he arrived. He then headed to his Mar-a-Lago Club Resort in Palm Beach. And before boarding Air Force One, he gave a farewell speech at Joint Base Andrews in Maryland saying, quote, we will be back in some form. Trump wished the new administration good luck and success. Two Ohioans are behind bars on federal charges related to Capitol riots. 50-year-old Donovan Crowell and 38-year-old Jessica Watkins are from Champaign County. An affidavit says they were part of a crowd who forcibly entered the Capitol and have ties to a militia group on January 6th. Both appeared remotely in court and waived their right to an identity hearing. 10TV is looking into a run on guns. According to an industry expert, there has been a 60% increase in gun sales in the last year nationwide. Lacey Crisp explains the impact of this and the increase in sales here in Ohio. The owners of LEPD tell me before the pandemic on a good day, they would sell about 10 guns. Well, they tell me they've had several days in the last few months where they've sold 150 guns, which is leading to a supply shortage. It's beyond a perfect storm. Eric Delbert is the owner of LEPD and says firearm sales shot up as the pandemic hit. Then there was an increase in crime and civil unrest, add in supply issues because of the coronavirus, and his left shells that looked like this a year ago almost empty. People who necessarily weren't uh, firearms owners come out and say, you know what, I think it's time uh, to purchase a firearm, to consider it, and to train on it. We called several other area gun shops and they had the same story to tell. Not only guns, but ammo is also tough to find. We predict here in two weeks, we're not going to have a firearm on the shelves to sell. He says the good news is that most of the people who are buying guns are asking for training, likely because there are so many new gun owners. An industry report says 8.4 million people bought a firearm for the first time in 2020 in the U.S., which is 40 percent of all purchases. Delbert says they are seeing the same trend locally. So often now we're hearing, hey, I'm a first-time buyer. Um, we estimated last year it, it probably accounted for 60, 70 percent uh, of the sales. And Delbert tells me he doesn't see a change in the supply demands changing until the crime rate decreases. In Columbus, Lacey Crisp, 10TV News. Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther is calling for change. Up next, the city's plan to spend millions on new body cameras to hold officers accountable. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors.
Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and thanks for listening. How do you know if you or a loved one is at risk of problem gambling? By knowing the signs, such as borrowing money, hiding unpaid debts, bragging about wins, or just plain irritability. Sound familiar? Get Set Before You Bet is Ohio's initiative to help keep gambling safe and responsible for everyone. How does it work? Just visit BeforeYouBet.org to learn more and take the responsible gambling quiz. Together, we can keep gambling safe and responsible in Ohio. This message brought to you by Ohio for Responsible Gambling. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Last month, Andre Hill's death at the hands of a Columbus police officer sent shockwaves through the department and the city. But now, it's prompting change. This past week, the city held a news conference to discuss a new series of proposed police reforms, including upgrading body cameras and legislation to hold officers accountable. Here's Bennett Haberly. Hands out to the side, now! What the public learned from the body camera footage of the fatal shooting of Andre Hill is that Hill didn't have a gun when Officer Adam Coy opened fire. What we don't know is what was said between the two. Coy initially failed to activate his body-worn camera and did so only after the shooting, which was only captured because of a 60-second look-back feature that recorded video, but not audio. Anybody doing anything for Here you go, sir. We contact you next. We also learned through the footage that at least 12 minutes go by before any Columbus police officer rendered aid to Hill. And they only did so after the urging of a superior officer. Proposed changes would address both of these issues. Andre's law will not solve all police violence, but it's one more step in the right direction. Council President Shannon Harden announced Andre's law legislation that could lead to discipline, even criminal charges against some officers for things like failing to render aid to a person shot or hurt by police or failing to activate their body-worn cameras. While the city is invested in next-generation dash cam technology and we have a robust body-worn camera program, we fell short of my expectations and the community's expectations. Today, we're committing to change that, and we're announcing an investment in new technology to ensure we have body-worn camera footage when we need it the most. Mayor Andrew Ginther announced the city plans to spend more than $4.5 million to enhance the body-worn camera system used by officers, add new cameras, extend the look-back feature, and add an auto-record function to ensure video exists even if an officer fails to record. But the proposed changes still need to involve discussions with the Fraternal Order of Police and a new Memorandum of Understanding. The FOP has said it's open to discussions, but has criticized the Ginther administration's handling of ongoing talks. To stand in the way of reform, to oppose change, puts that sacred bond at risk for both our officers and the community, and that is unacceptable. So I look forward uh, to negotiating in good faith, uh, but focus on change and reform. Bennett Haverly, 10TV News. 
The FOP released a lengthy statement discussing these proposed reforms and calling for better communication from the mayor's office and clear direction on what officers are expected to do. You can read that full statement at 10tv.com. More than 200 people applied to sit on the Columbus Civilian Review Board. The window to apply closed recently. There are some notable names on the list, including Adrian Hood, the mother of Henry Green, who was killed by undercover police officers back in 2016. Also on the list, attorney Byron Potts, who is someone who has represented several families involved in police shootings. The board would look into allegations of misconduct within the police department. The members will serve staggered three-year terms. The city hopes to have the board seated by the end of the first quarter of 2021. I lost my only son, but my son did his job, and that's what he loved doing. Dozens gathered in Toledo to honor Officer Brandon Stalker. The 24-year-old officer died after he was shot during a standoff. Governor Mike DeWine also addressed the shooting last week. Officer Stalker was shot and killed when a man exited his home after a standoff and opened fire on law enforcement. The officer, just 24 years of age, joined the Toledo Police Department in 2018. He leaves behind a seven-year-old daughter, a three-month-old son, and other family members. Ohio's unemployment system is under attack. Thieves are looking to steal hundreds of thousands of dollars in unemployment benefits as well as pandemic unemployment dollars. The agency in charge says this is slowing the state's ability to get help to Ohioans who really need it. TV's Kevin Landers spoke with the director. The director of the state's unemployment office says her office isn't sure how the thieves are stealing people's information to illegally apply for unemployment benefits. But she wanted to make clear that the theft of personal information did not come from a breach or a leak of the state's computer system. How much money and who is behind the theft? Those are the questions the director of the state's unemployment office is trying to figure out. We know this is a national problem. There is a belief that it is the result of international crime rings. Those crime rings, the state says, have stolen identities of people and used the information to apply for both regular unemployment checks and federal pandemic unemployment assistance called PUA. Funds have been paid to illegitimate claims. We, we do know that we are working through a process to hone in on that figure. The theft of personal information snared those in the highest positions of state government. A few weeks ago, Fran and I uh, uh, got some correspondence from the state of Ohio uh, that we had filed an unemployment claim. I had a false claim filed in my name as well. The thefts, which are not unique to Ohio, have delayed the state from getting legitimate unemployment claims to those who need the cash the most. It's made the job of getting legitimate benefits out to people harder and doing everything that we can do to protect against, uh, you know, losing any tax dollars out there to people who are filing false claims. ODJFS says it stopped 166,000 fraudulent 1099 forms from trying to get PUA benefits. It suppressed another 1,900 fraud applications for regular unemployment. But how many false claims actually ended up giving thieves unemployment cash remains unclear. We know that the scope is significant into the hundreds of thousands. Kevin Landers, 10TV News. If you are someone whose identity was used to apply for benefits, here's what the state is recommending for you. Report identity theft to the state. ODJFS recommends that you follow the tax filing guidance regarding identity theft from both the IRS and the Ohio Department of Taxation. 
You can find links at our website, 10tv.com, and you should also check your credit report. The Ohio Department of Health says a vaccine provider possibly mishandled nearly 900 doses of the Moderna vaccine. ODH says Specialty Rx was given 1,500 vaccines to vaccinate eight long-term care facilities before the new year. However, ODH says 890 doses were not used and were stored at temperatures not suitable for the vaccine. They are not allowed to administer or transfer any of the affected doses until next steps are given. Now to some positive news from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center about hospital stays. 10TV's Brittany Bailey has the details. OSU Wexner Medical Center is in the middle of this fight against the coronavirus pandemic from research to clinical studies and the center to stop COVID. It's about having a brilliant team of faculty, physicians and researchers who can translate their findings into innovative patient care. And the medical center is also on the front lines of the vaccine rollout with shots at the shot. Certainly the state is doing its best to dispense vaccine. We do get shipments of vaccine and we are doing our part to get those vaccines shots in the arms uh, of patients, which is really the beginning of uh, creating uh, the immunity uh, uh, everybody needs to overcome uh, the, the pandemic. This comes as we see COVID-19 hospital stays in our region on a downward trend. For the fourth day in a row, hospitalizations in Zone 2 are below 800. In December, they were topping 1,200. The number of COVID-positive inmates in the hospital is at its lowest level as well. And with the new administration could come new urgency in vaccine rollout. President Joe Biden has a goal of getting 100 million more Americans vaccinated in the first 100 days of his presidency. That would uh, go a long way to create herd immunity. Herd immunity is when enough of a population is immune to this COVID-19 vaccine such that it can't spread in the population. And stopping that spread is even more critical with the new virus variants even more contagious. Brittany Bailey, 10TV News. The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center will be vaccinating people at the Schottenstein Center as we move through the older adult population. Thank you all so much for being here with us today. Remember, if it affects you, your family, and Ohio, we're here to make sure those accountable face the state. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, that's again Tracy Townsend, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Neil Armstrong waited six hours and 39 minutes to step onto the surface of the moon. Jackie Robinson waited 20 months to play his first game with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And even DiCaprio had to wait 22 years to win an Oscar. You can wait until your destination. Don't text and drive. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. If you're worried your friend may be struggling, remember, you don't have to be there to be there. You can say how while you will get a fake tattoo. You can ask with an app if it works for you. You can write him a text or knit him a sweater. If you can't be together, you can write him a letter. Whatever, whatever, whatever gets you talking. Chat on the game, kick off your flip flops. You can ask on your couch while you binge watch. 
However you do it, you gotta ask a friend. And if they don't share, you can ask again. Whatever, whatever, whatever gets you talking. Whatever, whatever, whatever gets you talking. Reach out to a friend about their mental health. Learn how you can help at SeizeTheAwkward.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and the Jed Foundation. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Sarah McQuaid, who is the Communications and Marketing Manager for the Columbus Regional Airport Authority. How are you? Hey, Dave. I'm doing great. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us uh, what the Columbus Regional Airport Authority is. So the Columbus Regional Airport Authority um, is responsible for managing and operating passenger-focused John Glenn Columbus International Airport, cargo-focused Rickenbacker International Airport and General Aviation Airport, Bolton Field. Okay. And you put out a, a, a news release the other day talking about the situation as the pandemic continues with travel going especially out of John Glenn, and uh, it's still really down. Yeah. So obviously the uh, pandemic definitely uh, impacted our travel numbers for 2020. Uh, we had nearly 3.5 million passengers fly through John Glenn International and the Rickenbacker Passenger Terminal last year, and that number represents just 39% of our record-breaking 8.9 million passengers that we had in 2019. So we definitely saw a decrease in our passengers. And obviously the, you know, the health aspect of the pandemic is front and center, but this, this is a shame because it was coming as uh, the airport was really coming into its own with new airlines and new flights. It was, it was really on the move. That's, that's definitely true. We were experiencing um, consistent growth for the past several years. And um, as I mentioned, 2019 was record-breaking with the amount of passengers that we had. So, um, yeah, this pandemic was unfortunate, but um, we are really optimistic about the future, especially with vaccines becoming available and um, people really starting to understand how they can fly and do it in a healthy and safe way. You know, I just have this feeling that if we're lucky and if, you know, in the middle of August, Dr. Fauci says, it looks like we've got a good handle on this and folks can begin to relax a little bit. I think the travel industry is just going to explode. I think you might be right, just because people are really sick of being stuck at home. Um, I know I'm ready to travel as soon as I'm, I'm able to. And, um, yeah, I think there could be uh, a boom in travel, hopefully, in the second half of the year. The situation at the airport, uh, when it does return to normalcy or whatever you know normalcy looks like in the future, are all of the routes still going to be in place, like the you know the nonstops to California and that type of thing, or will it be a gradual ramp back up and kind of a wait and see how things go thing? So many of the routes uh, through our airports have been restored, uh, but that changes based on demand. And so um, we encourage people to check our website, flycolumbus.com, um, and that's where you can find the current schedule of, of nonstop routes. Um, but we are, you know, we're expecting, especially for spring break, um, which is normally a busy time of year, that more routes could become available. Um, it, it really just depends on, on what the demand is like. Talking with Sarah McQuaid, she's the communications and marketing manager for the Columbus Regional Airport Authority. 
For folks like me who have not been to the airport for the last year, does it look different these days? I mean, is there anything still going on with some of the renovations and other things? Definitely. So, um, like most things in life, the passenger experience looks a little different. Um, So we have all the measures that people have come to expect, like increased sanitization, hand sanitizer stations, plexiglass barriers, social distancing decals. Um, And then we also have uh, PPE vending machines at CMH, and those have things like face masks, hand sanitizer, sanitizing wipes, in case you forget to pack those things. You can purchase those at the PPE vending machine, or um, our retail shops as well have those things for sale. Um, And then we also have new touchless parking sensors in our parking garages. You don't have to touch the button when you get your ticket for parking. Um, And then later this year, we're going to have Uh, new robotic floor scrubbers. So just continuing to look at ways to make our airports safer and healthier. Interesting. Uh, What about the restaurants and and businesses at the airport? Are they hanging in there? They are hanging in there. Uh, We do have, you know, different hours for some of the restaurants based on busy times of the day. And so we really encourage people to check our website, flycolumbus.com. And that's where you can see our current shop hours, restaurant hours, and that sort of thing. You can be prepared before you come to your, before you come to the airport for your next flight. And as far as passenger traffic at Rickenbacker, uh, those flights tend to go to more of the vacation destinations. Has that been disrupted a lot? Leisure travel is actually one of the areas where we're, we're still seeing people are trying to get out of this Ohio winter weather and head to warmer sunny destinations, or maybe they're trying to head out west to, um, you know, have a just different change of scenery. So th- those destinations are um, still having uh, some travelers. Those are probably more appealing, too, because if you're heading to the Carolinas or down to Florida, they're shorter flights and they're nonstop. So you're not having to fool with a bunch of different airports and that type of thing. Right. Yeah, that's what's great about it. And um, we do expect and, you know, I wish we had a crystal ball so we could really know what to expect. But we're hoping that, that we are going to see those types of flights start to increase. Um, because, like you said, yeah, it's, it's quick to get there. Um, and if you follow all the recommended guidelines and just make sure that you plan and prepare before your trip, you can do it in a healthy and safe way if you're comfortable with it. What about the the rules and regulations for mask wearing, uh, you know, if you're using the shuttle buses or in the airport itself? Yes, face coverings are required in all areas of the airport, um, as well as the shuttle buses. And when you get on the flight, uh, they will also be required on the flight. So, and packing a few extra masks the next time you go on a trip um, so that you have them ready to go. Talking with Sarah McQuaid, she's the communications and marketing manager for the Columbus Regional Airport Authority. Well, you know, a lot of people haven't been to the airport in a while, and uh, it might be a little bit different compared to the last time they flew. Are there protocols that they need to follow or things that have changed? Absolutely. So there are some things that people can do to make sure that they have a healthy experience the next time they fly, and that actually starts with booking your trip. So as you're, you know, looking for your flights, make sure to check for international travel advisories or... um, COVID-19 regulations that could be in place at your destination, and you can find all of that online, typically just by Googling your destination. And then before you get to the airport, uh, make sure not to travel if you have any symptoms. 
and um, read about some of the new TSA guidelines, which you can find on our website, flycolumbus.com. Uh, you can now bring hand sanitizer up to 12 ounces on your carry-on, so that's an example of some of the new changes that have happened. Um, and then make sure to contact your airline uh, for up-to-date travel information, see if they have any specific guidelines in place that you should be aware of. And then once you get to the airport, start wearing your face covering, make sure you're staying six feet from others. Um, there are lots of ways you can reduce contact. We really suggest um, downloading a mobile boarding pass before you head to the airport. That way you don't have to touch a pass and hand it back and forth to somebody. Um, and then, yeah, just continue practicing healthy and safe guidelines on the aircraft and once you get to your destination. And then once you get back home, um, the state of Ohio is suggesting that people self-quarantine for 14 days if they are traveling from a state that's reporting a positive testing rate of 15% or higher. So we have all of that information on our website, flycolumbus.com. It's a really great way to just familiarize yourself with the travel experience now that we're post-pandemic or still in the pandemic, really. Um, it's probably been a while since a lot of people have flown, so hopefully these resources can help. When people are coming up on the TSA checkpoints, uh, is that all spread out now so that everybody's, uh, you know, like six feet away as they stand in line? Yes. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, we're maintaining six feet distance, and our, our travelers are maintaining six feet throughout the airport, and that includes the TSA checkpoint. So that's definitely something to be aware of, that the line might look a little bit longer, but that's because people are distancing, which is a good thing. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm sure it does look, I mean, even if there's only 60 people in line six feet apart, <laughs> that covers a long area. <laughs> right. <laughs> the line will probably move pretty quickly, uh, but yeah, it, it could look a little long. <laughs> Here's something that I was wondering about, too. Now, I, I know that when you go through a checkpoint, you can use your passport as ID, but for people who don't have a passport, we're going through this period with the change in driver's licenses, but now we have the complication of expired driver's licenses that haven't been renewed yet. Are those causing any blips as people go through? So the the new real ID uh, license requirement uh, goes into effect this October, uh, but if you do have an expired driver's license, you can actually continue using that uh, as long as it's domestic travel uh, for up to a year, I believe. But, yeah, just make sure to um, to avoid any confusion or anything. Just make sure to check with the DMV and try and get that renewed and, and definitely get the real ID uh, by that October deadline. Okay. Sarah McQuaid, again, she's the Communications and Marketing Manager for the Columbus Regional Airport Authority. Anything else you'd like to add? No, I think uh, we covered a lot. Um, you know, we're, we're always open to any kinds of questions, concerns, or thoughts that... that travelers have and you can check out our website flycolumbus.com to contact us or to just get some more information so you're ready for your next flight okay here's hoping for a great uh you know second half three quarters of 2021 (laughs) i sure hope so this has been columbus perspective a weekly public affairs presentation of the fan heard each sunday morning at six on wbns am that's 1460 espn columbus and sunday morning at seven on wbns fm sports radio 97.1 the fan
Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.